Let's get into our outline. Point number one, despising the good word. Despising the good word. We're going to see in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse number 5, for example, it talks about, it says, I've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. Certainly, without question, the word of God is good. Amen? Amen. It's a good gift from the Lord. So what's happening historically? What's happening historically is these people are sick of eating the manna every single day. The manna's coming down, and they're getting it every single day, and, and they're sick of it. So because this scripture tells us, let's take a look at it. And I want to give you the first thing, and that's manna's description. It says in here, and by the way, as we're going to get the description, let me just point your attention to Exodus chapter 16 and verse 31, where it also gives description of the manna. And it says, And the house of Israel called the name thereof manna. It was like coriander seed and white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. That's very similar to what we see in Numbers chapter 11. So it looks like coriander seed. What does coriander seed look like? Well, they're small, round balls. They're large for a seed. They're kind of like a small hazelnut, if that'll help you. And so, you know, it's a decent-sized seed, and it's ra- so it's small, it's round. In fact, in Psalm 78 and verse 24, it calls manna the corn of heaven. So it's a kernel that's round and about the size of a kernel of a corn. It says the color of bdellium. Good luck looking that up. But in Exodus, it says that it's white. Okay, so it's got to be close to that. Um, I would say since it is small and round and white and falls from heaven and falls from heaven to the earth and eventually melts, it's kind of like hail, isn't it? It's kind of like hail. Now, that's kind of interesting because in Job chapter 38 and verse 22, there's a message for Job where it says, hey, have you ever considered the treasures of the hail? And you may be thinking, what in the world is the treasures of the hail? Well, maybe it's a picture of manna. And let me just tell you something. There's some treasure in that manna. It says it tastes like fresh oil. It tastes like wafers and honey. I like wafers and honey. I don't know about you. These guys didn't like it after a while, I guess. So that's what it's described as. Let's go to the next thing, manna's depiction. What is manna picture? What does it depict? What does it represent? Well, this is the bread of God, right, that came down from heaven to man. It's obviously a picture of the word of God. It is the good word of God. Both manna and the word of God have these same following characteristics that I'm going to read from you. Every one of these characteristics I'm going to read for you that are of manna taken directly from Exodus chapter 16. Put a bookmark in Exodus chapter 16. Go back there and read through it. Put your, put your glasses on and look real close and see if you can't find these as well as other things that are true of the manna that are also true of the word of God. First off, it's a supernatural gift from God. Uh, God is the one who made this thing. God is the one who provided this thing. It comes from the Lord. It came down to the place where they were at. They didn't have to travel some long journey to go find it. Uh, the manna came directly to them. It's relatively small in size, wouldn't you say? It's white, representing purity. It's sweet to the taste. We see that in Psalm 119, 103, right? The word of God is sweeter than honey to my mouth. The manna, when it was provided, well, it was provided not just to be looked at. It was provided to be eaten. God provided the manna so that the people would actually eat it, right? Are you actually eating and consuming and digesting the Word of God? Or do you just look at it? Do you just pick it off a shelf and lay it in your lap and 
Listen to somebody talk about it. It was to be gathered daily, every single day. And not only was it to be gathered every single day, it was to be gathered at a particular time in the day. It was to be gathered in the morning. Because by the time the sun came out and waxed hot, then the manna on the ground would melt and would be no more. If you didn't get your food in the morning, well, you're going without eating that day. And that's the way it was going to be. And if they tried to save some for the next day, it would breed worms and it would stink and you couldn't eat it. You had to have a fresh dose of God's word every morning because the musicians know the time to tune the instruments is before the concert, not after. You've got to get ready in the morning. You've got to get ready before the day starts. And you get that from Exodus 16. They had to labor to get it. I mean, they had to go out and gather it up. They had to do a little bit of work. They had to labor to get it. In fact, while they labored to get it, you know what position they had to get it down? They, they had to get down on their knees to really get it. 2 Timothy 2.15 talks about being a workman, rightly dividing the word of truth. You know it takes work. It takes work to do that thing and to get the word of God and to get it like you need it. That's an important characteristic. I know it's weird that my hands are behind my head, but I got to get this string out of my thing. So it takes some work. And that's why it says in Exodus 16, 17, look at this one. In Exodus 16, 17, God knew it, man. He drops the manna for everybody. Some people gathered more. Some people gathered less. Don't you know that's the truth? God drops this thing that's small in size. He brings it to where you at. It's sweet to the taste. You got to do a little bit of work. And you know what? Some people, they gather up a whole bunch of it, don't they? And some people, not so much. The Bible says, every man according to his eating. How hungry are you? How hungry are you? Why don't I know the things that you guys talk about? How come I've never seen? Well, I don't know, maybe you're not very hungry. I mean, I've just learned some things over the years. If a man's hungry, he's going to eat. He's going to eat. And I could go to all the classes, and I could figure out all the ways to decorate the plate real nice and garnish it all up and make that meal look as attractive as possible. But if you're not hungry, it doesn't matter how pretty the plate looks. You ain't eating. You ain't eating. And yet if there's a guy or a bunch of guys who are hungry and you just kind of hack off a big slab of meat and throw it in the fire and throw it out in the middle of the floor, those guys will jump on it. You know that's true because they're hungry. So I decided I ain't doing a lot of decorating. (laughs) Some eat more and some eat less. That manna, if you didn't take advantage of it while it was available, you're going to lose it. You use it or you lose it. That's true. At first sight, when they saw the manna, they said, what is it? In fact, that's why they called it manna, which means, what is it? You know what that's like? That means that you've got the Word of God, and at first sight of the Word of God, none of you really knew what this was all about. You had to be taught. We call that discipleship. You had to be taught. And God gave it to test His people. It was a test. What are they going to do with it? What are they going to do with it? And if you took some time and You noticed in verse 32 of this chapter, and you compare it with Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 4, that manna, a pot of manna, 
was one of only three things that was included in the Ark of the Testimony, together with Aaron's rod that budded and the tablets of the commandments of Moses. And a pot of manna was included in the Ark of the Testimony. Now, wait a minute. I thought that if the manna waited till tomorrow, it would breed worms and stink. Yeah, but not that manna that was in the Ark. Because that manna was preserved pure and perfect forever in the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, yeah. This is the picture of the Word of God. It represents spiritual food. That's why back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 3 it says, And they did all eat the same spiritual meat. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, we saw this last week, it says that he humbled thee and he suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy forefathers know, that he might make thee to know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. See, manna is not just about food. It's not just about bread for your belly. It's spiritual food for your soul. And this is the lesson that God wants us to get in Numbers chapter 11. But it goes deeper than that. Because anytime we talk about the Word of God with a small w, we must also consider the Word of God with a capital W. So in John chapter 1, verse number 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse number 14, right? And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, the capital W, eternal, living word of God. Numbers chapter 11 and verse number 20 in the midst of what I read says, not just that they despise the manna, it says they despise the Lord. They despise the Lord. Because you can't separate God and his word. You can't do it. And your attitude towards God's word is your attitude towards God himself. So Jesus Christ himself says in John chapter 6 to his disciples in verse 48, I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that if a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. So the Jews heard this, right? And they're kind of freaking out. That's a weird thing. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, And my blood is drink indeed. If you kept reading, you would see the Jews are just scandalized by this whole idea of some sort of cannibalism. And so Jesus clarifies it all. And this is what you have to get in verse 63, where he says, look, I'm not talking about that. It's not literally the wafer and the cup of wine, y'all. It's not literally that. Verse 63. It's the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words, the words, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. You can't separate the small w word of God from the capital W word of God. You can't do it. They are the same. They are the same. 
So, now that we know what the manna pictures, well, now we have, letter C in your outline, man's dilemma. Knowing what manna represents. Do you realize what Israel did in Numbers chapter 11? Do you realize the gravity of those statements by saying, God's good gift of God's food, it's not good enough. I prefer to go back to Egypt. I prefer all those tasty things that I miss from my old life. Now, I get it. They're thinking, you know, man needs a little variety. I mean, how many different ways can you cook manna anyway? It says in verse number 8, they went about, they gathered it, they ground it in the mills, they beat it in a mortar, they baked it in pans, they made cakes of it. I mean, I get it. You know, in the morning it's manna hotcakes, and in the afternoon it's manna burgers and manna bagels and filet of manna and banana bread. I mean, I don't know. There, you only get it so many ways. And they wanted something new. They wanted something a little more tasty. They still had a taste for the things of Egypt. And this is the real problem because Egypt represents the world. They remember those fish and those melons and those cucumbers and the leeks and the onions. They remember all that stuff that they had back in the world and they they say to the Lord, hey, okay, thanks for the bread and all, but give us something new, will you? I'm tired of this old manna. So don't you know, I mean, don't you know, straight out of Egypt, you can now have available to you the new international version the new American Standard Version, the new King James Version, the new Revised Standard Version, the new Living Translation, the new English Translation, the new Century Version, and it goes on and on and on. And they forget that actually there's nothing new under the sun, is there? You see, everybody wants to say that the Bible is perfect and the Bible is all we need. I mean, you'd be a heretic if you didn't say that. You want to say that it's the final authority for all matters of faith and practice. You want to say that it's all fully sufficient for everything we encounter in life. And I could get up here and just talk about how great the Bible is and get a whole bunch of amens and everybody feel good about how good the Bible is and go and eat lunch. Until we have a real problem in our lives. And then... We just don't really like the taste of the good gift that God has provided for us. We don't like what God says in his word about our problem today. So you know what we do? We decide we're going to go shop around. And where do we go to shop around? Well, we go straight to Egypt. We go straight to Egypt for public opinions, human philosophy, reason, higher education until we find something that suits our taste a little bit better. You better be careful, because that's Israel in Numbers chapter 11. That's despising what God provides for you. 
for your good. Can I remind you of James chapter 1 and verse 17? Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. But what they don't realize and what Numbers 11 is written for you to realize is despising the good word of God is despising God. He takes it personally. His anger was kindled in this passage of Scripture. See, when God's good word is not good enough for you, you know what you're about to find out? Life's going to start getting harder. But before we get to that, can I just say, the children of Israel weren't the only ones complaining that day. Moses gets in on the action as well. See, I could have made the whole sermon about those dirty Israelites not appreciating God's word. I just didn't think that was fair. The chapter goes on and shows Moses. He gets in on the act too. But I must say, the circumstances around Moses are significantly different than they were around the children of Israel. So that's the second point of our study. Number two, despising the good work. The good work. I want to remind you of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 1 where it says this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. The office of a bishop, the shepherding and caring for God's people is a good work. Moses was the shepherd and bishop of that church in the wilderness. And it was a good work because God gave it to him. And every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. It's good. It's the most important and rewarding work you could ever possibly partake in. And it's also ridiculously difficult. It's ridiculously difficult. You say, why? Um, Y'all got mirrors? (laughs) Listen, dealing with carnal people is hard. Listen, people whining and complaining about things that you can't You don't have in your power the ability to do anything about. And that's what Moses was feeling at this point in his life. He was growing weary and well-doing. So the first takeaway that I want you to see is that ungrateful Christians make God mad. Ungrateful Christians, not content with the good gifts that have been given, they make the Lord mad. Now, we didn't read verse number 1 of Numbers chapter 11, but let me read it for you now. It says, And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. And the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. Complaining children of God make God mad. And Moses heard these people whining and complaining, and he got mad too. But Moses didn't get mad for the same reason the Lord got mad. You see, Moses was just tired of carrying the load and the burden that was placed on him. It says in verse 10, the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. There's a semicolon. And it says, Moses also was displeased. Now, what you need to understand 
God sent him out there with all these people, and God sent him out there with all their problems. This is not something Moses chose to do himself. God told him to do it, and it was a big mess. So Moses responds to God in the next several verses, and he asks five questions, and he makes two bold statements. And they're very easy to understand, and so let me just reiterate them for you. The first thing is, why did you afflict me, God, by sending me out here in the midst of all this mess? Why did you afflict me? And then he says, why don't you like me? (laughs) Starting to get personal. Why have I not found favor in thy sight? Right? Why don't you like me? Because you sent me out here to suffer. That's my evidence why. Then he goes on, he says, did I conceive these people? In other words, are they my children? Are they my responsibility? I mean, they're your, they're the children of God, you know, children. I'm not, they're not mine. Did I birth them such that you ask me to carry the load of being both mother and father to them and care for them and do all the things? They're they're not my kids. And then he goes and he says, where am I going to go get enough meat to feed all these people anyway? See, you need to understand something. I mean, Moses is a good dude. Moses has a good heart. Moses wanted to help these people. He really did, but he thought, we couldn't find enough meat to to meet their request if we wanted to. He was just overwhelmed. He couldn't bear the load that was placed on him anymore. And what he was actually doing is he's just crying out to God for help. And you know that because the first statement that he makes after all those questions is, I'm not able to bear all these people alone. I'm not able to do it. Well, that's true. You aren't able to do it. And then he goes on and he says, well, you know, I mean, if this is just what I have to do, just go ahead and kill me now. Just kill me now. You know, I don't want to see my wretchedness. You know, if you really love me, Lord, if you really love me, you'll put me out of my misery. That's how bad it is. I mean, isn't it comforting to know that even Bible people had those problems? Okay, okay, Mose, I get it, a little hyperbole. I get it. Life stinks today. Okay. Stress brings out the worst in people. You're not immune. That happens to all of us. But what Moses didn't remember is this principle that we learned in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, remember? will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Moses, you can bear it because God is faithful. Because God is with you and because God just did unbelievable miracles. Why are you thinking you've got to drum up all the meat for everybody? Don't you think God can do the miracle to bring the meat in? And at the end of the story, you know he does. Listen. Ministry's hard. It's just hard. Mentally, emotionally, bearing the burdens of others, feeling like you virtually have nobody to help you bear them. People are sheep. They're needy, and they make noise when they're uncomfortable. It's what they are. It's what we do. But Moses should know better. He really should. 
He should know that God certainly loves him, that God chose him to represent God before the people. He should remember that that's a privilege. He should remember that that is a good work. It's a good work. And we shouldn't think that good isn't good enough. He should remember that God delivered them from Pharaoh and that God will always provide. Hebrews 6 and verse 10, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So the second takeaway in this application is that, well, pastors need to have somebody to help bear their burdens to. Pastors need to have help too. Look, we're just people. We're just trying to serve the Lord. We're trying to be obedient. We're trying to be faithful. We didn't necessarily select the exact application of ministry. We feel like the Lord selected us to do it. We're happy to do it. It is a privilege, but it is hard. It's tough. It's tough for a pastor to really open up and share the burdens that that he feels and he carries with the average people among the church. It's just hard. Frequently, the average people among the church will either judge him for not being spiritual and mature enough, or they'll just begin to murmur and complain more, or they'll attack you more, or, or they get overwhelmed. They get overwhelmed thinking, I don't even know if I can hear this, I just, I, and they just trip offline. So for the people in spiritual leadership, it becomes understandably difficult what Moses is going through. Moses can't really talk to anybody. So Moses does what, well, Moses should have been doing all along anyway. He just talks to God. He just talks to God. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be careful for nothing. Quit worrying about it. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Moses is a leader among God's people. But he's also just a man. He's a man with a sin nature. He's a servant of God, doing a work for the Lord. And it's just got him down. That's just got him down. So how's all this going to play out? Well, that's our third point, delivering the good wisdom. Delivering the good wisdom. James chapter 3 and verse 17 talks about wisdom that comes from above. It comes down from above. We already saw in James chapter 1 that every good gift comes down from above. One of those good gifts would be godly wisdom that comes down from above. It is good. It's a good gift. It's good wisdom. So in the previous two points that we saw, well, we have two entirely different situations, and we have two entirely different contexts. Both were dissatisfied. Both were complaining. But God knows that there's different strokes for different folks. God's the one who wrote 1 Thessalonians 5.14, where it says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, Comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. There's different strokes for different folks. And if you want to be a good minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to be able to determine the audience in front of you. Are they unruly? Are they weak? 
Are they feeble-minded? What category, what, what state are they currently in? And then offer the proper kind of a response that will be most helpful. So the good wisdom of God in response, first off, letter A, is to support the weak. This is God's response toward Moses. So Moses is cheesed, Moses is upset, Moses is carnal, and Moses kind of complains and whines and says stuff to God he shouldn't have said. He's overloaded, but he does do Philippians 4, 6. He just says, I'm going to cast it all on him. I'm going to pray about everything. Now, I don't know what your prayer life is like. I don't know how you talk to God. I, I don't know if you speak normal, you know, 21st century English, but when you pray, you speak, you know, 16th, 17th century English. I don't know how you pray. That's your business. But I just talk to God. And, and if I'm mad, I just talk to God mad. And let me just tell you something about the Lord that I've learned over these years. He's a big boy. He can handle it. He can handle it. He, can, he understands when you're mad. He, he, can, he can let you vent. He's hoping that when you're done venting, you'll actually slow down and listen now. Will you listen now? I've listened to you. Will you listen? So, toward Moses, he recognizes in this moment, Moses is weak. He needs some support. He doesn't chastise Moses. Listen, Moses is a faithful servant, and he has stood through difficult circumstances, and he is personally caring for millions, literally, of God's people. He's tired. He's overwhelmed. He's at the end of his rope, and he needs help. That's where he's at. What does God do? Rebuke him for his lousy attitude? Tell him, you know, suck it up, buttercup? No. God sends help. That's the loving response. Get 70 men of the elders of Israel, men who have been proven to be leaders each in their own area. Bring them to the tabernacle. In other words, bring them to me, God says. They can stand with you and share the load. I will come down and talk to you at that point. I will take of the Spirit. He's not taking the Spirit from Moses. He's taking of the Spirit anointing that's on Moses and place it on them too, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you. The good wisdom in such a case is to support the weak. God proves the principle of 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Cast all your care upon him. He cares for you. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 to 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Go to the Lord. Cast your care upon him. He cares for you. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And so in Jeremiah 33.3, Call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Moses cries out to God. His attitude isn't exactly right. He's, you know, he's, he's kind of, Kind of going to some weird extremes. Just kill me, Lord, you know. A little victim mentality. 
And the Lord's like, okay, okay. I got you, man. I got you. I'll take care of you. God is good. His gifts are all good. And Moses needs help. Now, Moses did ask in a weird way. But God speaks weird. He speaks your language too. So he gave Moses what he really, truly wanted. Moses didn't really want to die. Moses really wanted help. And that's what God gave him. Praise the Lord. Now for those other folks. Letter B. How did he respond to them? Well, he supplied the wayward. That's what he did. Toward the Israelites, they're going to get an entirely different response from God. Why? Because they are not weak because of all the work they'd been doing for the Lord. They're unruly. They're unruly. It says they despised the Lord. Don't, don't fly by that statement. They despised the Lord. Do you think they're really going to get what they ask for? Well, in fact, they are. They are going to get what they asked for in this case. I remember a story. This is homecoming weekend, and a lot of people had class reunions. I had one, and I won't tell you the number of years. It's too many. I didn't go to it. But anyway, it reminded me of some stories of my childhood, and there was a story where we were young, and a friend of mine, truly I wasn't of this particular habit, but he smoked cigarettes. He was a kid. And his parents busted him, found the cigarettes. And they were like, oh, you like cigarettes. Well, let's, let's give you some cigarettes. So they sat him down, and they made him chain smoke the whole pack of cigarettes. That guy barfed his guts out. It was awful and never wanted another cigarette the rest of his life. Now, you might think this is a weird statement, but I think that's good parenting. They gave that kid in that instance what he wanted to teach him that he didn't want good things for himself. They wanted good things for him. And they loved him enough to let it happen. So God says to the rebellious Israelites, Oh, you want flesh. Oh, you want, you want flesh. Well, then flesh you'll get. So just get ready. Now you might want to take your Bibles and glance down to the last few verses of Numbers chapter 11, verses 31, 32, and 33. And in verse number 31, what it basically says is, is that, do we have verse 31 on there? What it basically says is, I guess we don't. Anyways, let me tell you what it says. It says that a day's journey in all directions and two cubits deep, a cubit typically is measured 18 inches, so three feet deep, a day's walking journey in all directions. The land was covered with these quail that God brought in from the sea. They all fly in from the sea, and they all land, and they're stacked up three feet deep in all directions. I don't know how many miles you can walk in a day, whatever that would have been. That's how much, that's how much meat God, God brought in for them. And what did the people do? Were they, you think the people would have been like, oh, man, I should have thought through this request. No, no. They were gluttonous. They dove in, man, and, and they're just going, going to town. 
you know, God is good. And they're just thinking this is awesome. All we got to do is, you know, rub the bottle and ask him for what we want. And he's going to give us what we want. And they're, they're going at it. And he says, you're not going to eat one day, not five, not 10, not 20, a whole month, 30 days. These guys are on a gluttonous feast. And then, in, and then, in verse 33, let me read it to you. And while the flesh was yet between their teeth, ere it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people. And the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. What exactly happened back there? Well, it doesn't exactly say. But a plague is a disease. So God's like, dive in. You want flesh? Dive into the flesh. But you know what's going to happen? For whatever the circumstantial reasons were, whatever was going on, biology, I don't know. They ended up eating so much meat, they got diseased. And a whole bunch of them died. In other words, their lust of the flesh killed them. It killed them. Proverbs 13, 25, the righteous eateth to the satisfying of his soul, but the belly of the wicked, the belly of the wicked shall want. 1 Corinthians 6, meats for the belly and the belly for meats. Okay, there's a purpose. You need to eat something. I get it. But God shall destroy both it and them. Now that verse isn't over. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So you're telling me this lust for eating the flesh is somehow compared to fornication? Um, in the mind of the Lord it is in this sense that it is a type of spiritual fornication because despising the good word of God is despising the Lord and wanting to step out on him with a new lover. You want to go back to Egypt? Romans 16, 18. For they that are such... Serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches, deceive the hearts of the simple. You can always tell a false teacher who, don't ha who doesn't have the good word of God. They'll deceive people. They'll use good words and fair speeches, but they'll lie to you. They'll tell you things that aren't true. You see, these wayward children did the most offensive thing that they could do to God. They despised his provision. They despised what God gave them. They despised his word. They despised him. So what does God do? He gave them exactly what they asked for. He gave them over to their own lusts. He gave them over to their own destruction. Let me just tell you, friends, this is a sobering thought. Because... You don't want to be that person. You don't want to be the person that finally crosses the line that the Lord says, okay, okay, look, I have been trying to protect you. There are times that I don't give you things for your own good. But you are wearying me with your hatred of what I do for you for good. I'm just going to, just go, just go. Turn yourself, I just turn you over to your own lusts. You don't want that to happen to you. So, the thing that you need to remember is, be careful what you ask for. You might just get it. Be careful what you ask for. 
Be careful what you ask for. That's why when we look at Romans chapter 8 and the Spirit of God intercedes for us, right, according to the will of God. You want to be careful what you pray for. You want to pray according to the will of God. Praying in Jesus' name, pray according to the will of God. What is the will of God? Well, it's written down for you. Pray for things according to the will of God. I don't know what it says. We'll start studying it. The manna was not given for you to look at. It was given for you to eat. Receive the good gifts from the Lord and be thankful, amen? Be content. So there's three good gifts that I want to point out, and each of you can make application as you see fit. First and foremost, the greatest gift of all is the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And if you've never received the greatest gift of all, of forgiveness of your sins and eternal life that is in the person of Jesus Christ, that gift is available to you today. It's available right now. All you have to do is ask God to forgive you. Ask him to come into your heart and your life and to save you from your sins. And you surrender full control of your life to him. Greatest gift ever. You'll never repent of that one. Let me ask you a question. Those of you who have already made that decision, and most of you already have. When's the last time you just stopped and thanked him for the gift that is the word of God? When's the last time you just said, thank you, Lord, for this unspeakable gift? You know how you can really thank him? You could bow your heads and say thank you, and you should. You know how you can really thank him? Obey it. Read it. Study it. Consume it. Digest it. Allow it to be the fuel for you then to get up and work for him. Because that's the last great gift that's mentioned, and that's ministry. Are you involved in personal ministry? Have you thanked God for the privilege that it is to be involved in ministry? It is a privilege. Don't seek to get out of ministry. It's God's gift. Listen, God doesn't need you. He doesn't need any of us. The fact that he allows you to be involved in ministry is a gift. It's a privilege. Be content. Be thankful. Leverage that. Work that with joy. If you need help, ask for help. That's fine. But my goodness, don't despise the good work of God. Wherever that hits you, let's just take a minute and let God speak to your hearts. Let's pray.